You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about the business and culture of book selling in the 21st century. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Before we begin, if you like what we're doing, there are a couple of ways to help us out. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also support the show via Patreon. Finally, I'm excited to announce a cool partnership with Libro.fm. Libro.fm is the first audiobook company to directly support independent bookstores. They make it easy for you to listen to more audiobooks at a great price, all while knowing you're helping your community thrive. Learn how to get your first month for 99 cents at bookstories.show. This week we're in Brentwood, California, home of Diesel. I sat down with John Evans in his office a few steps from the storefront in the Brentwood Country Mart. He co-owns Diesel with his partner, Alice. The three of us talked off mic, and I wished I had come prepared with another one because Alice was equally great to talk to. Diesel started in Emeryville, California, and expanded to Larkspur, Malibu, and Brentwood. Today, the Brentwood store is their core focus. We talked about lots of things, and John's insights and perspectives on the industry were fantastic. I felt like the conversation could have gone on another hour or so. At some point in the future, we'll have to do a round two. In any case, here's my conversation with John Evans of Diesel. John, thank you for being here. Or actually, thank you for hosting me at your great store. I want to start at the beginning. Maybe if you can kind of synopsize how and when Diesel happened. Yeah, so it, I guess it, it concretely happened on a beach in Portugal. Uh, when Allison and I were there, um, she was taking a sabbatical. She worked for a book distributor at that time. I was in graduate school in poetics. Where at? At New College, California in San Francisco. Okay. And, uh, and we were thinking what we wanted to do next because I was kind of missing the bookstores that I'd worked in and where I'd met her. Um, in the early 80s up in Berkeley. And uh, she didn't really like what she was doing within the book industry, but was passionate about bookstores. And neither of us thought of a bookstore that we really wanted to work in in the Bay Area. And we thought, let's open one in Emeryville. Because Berkeley had plenty of bookstores, San Francisco had plenty. So Emeryville was a kind of corrupt Chandler-esque kind of uh, town at that time. Do you know the uh, Watergate apartments there? Yes. I lived there with my dad for like five years. My, my parents were split, and I would go back to the Bay Area, and he lived Yeah, they were just right across the, the street, apartments. basically. Yeah, yeah, from where... Did you go to the, that original store? I don't, uh, I don't, I don't I know don't, if the, a, the I don't, age is right. I don't know. It would know. have been 89 to 94. No, yeah, I was like... This is like 85 to 88, maybe. Yeah. And But that pier at the end of the Watergate in yes. Emeryville, I still go there yeah. with, with the friends. It's like a nostalgic thing. It's so cool. So your, your origin, I didn't mean to interrupt you, your origin is in Emeryville. Continue. Yeah. And so we uh, we opened the store down there and there was a, a sort of a big food emporium, kind of a marketplace. It was where a lot of artists in the first wave of gentrification in San Francisco, they were moving over into Emeryville, into all the old uh, industrial buildings. And, and we thought, they could use a really good bookstore. And uh, then there was a diversified economy there. And uh, so that was great. But it turned out our our landlords had kind of misrepresented what they were doing, and part of it was going bankrupt. And so it's sort of, uh, there's sort of a theme in our, throughout our, our bookstore life around real estate. 
So um, what you're promised, what you're not promised, and and dealing with that. But um, so in '94 we moved to Oakland. But the the generative idea was, I, I guess, around '86 was whenever Chernobyl was, which was '85 or '86, and that's when we decided to do it. And then it was just a matter of time. How'd you come up with the name? The name is very interesting to me because yeah. it can probably get misconstrued for auto body shop, uh, you know, whatever number of things you can come up with. It's a jean brand or yes. a clothing brand. Yes. So talk about the genesis of the name. Yeah, could. at the time it it wasn't a jean <clears throat> brand, so that didn't exist, but it, it definitely diesel engines and all that was around. So um, we wanted a very urban store, a very uh, accessible, playful store. Uh, so nothing about snobbery, accessible to every single person. And to celebrate that kind of a cosmopolitanism, and we could not think of a name for the life of us. And, so hard. and the streets and the, you know, we didn't want it to be, you know, Flora and Fauna books. We didn't want it to be uh, John and Allison's books. And so um, there's a dog next door named Diesel. And when we were talking about the name over and over and over, the woman next door would call out to her dog, calling the dog home. And it was a beautiful dog. And we thought, well, we can name it Diesel because that's a very urban name. We were down by the railroad tracks in Emeryville. Why not? We could do a diesel. And then it's like, but diesel books just sounds like, you know, car repair manuals and stuff. Yeah. So we ended Shelton. up, uh, there was a place called Lisa's, a hair shop. And it was Lisa's, comma, a hair shop in Oakland. Um, that was a very cool hair shop that all kinds of people went to. And it's very, she's a great gal. And uh, we thought we could name it Diesel, a bookstore, just kind of joking around. And we thought, yeah, I like that. Because we had to come up with a name that we were going to say for decades and decades. Yeah, and not get and tired Diesel of And Diesel is fun. It just is to us. It still is as relevant as it was. You and know, about right? a year after we opened, we a friend sent a T-shirt from Indonesia that said Diesel, Home of the Brave. And it was a branded, and it was the beginning of the Diesel line. And actually, years later, the guy that actually founded the Diesel line, which was a um, – he was a clothes designer in New York, had a little shop and created his own clothes, was bought up by a couple guys from Macy's who then reintroduced it from Italy. He walked into our store. We had no idea who he was or any of that story. And he said, where did you get your name and your logo? And uh, I said, why are you asking? And he said about the story of his brand of clothing. And uh, he said, yeah, but where'd you get the logo? And Allison, my partner, said, same place you did. And he said, well, where's that? And she said, it's a gas station in Arizona. And he said, New Mexico. <laughs> and so we actually got the image and of what we were using, wanting to use that kind of old sort of Futura, you know, uh, sans serif font. Typeface. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, he did the same thing, you know, just had a little like, yeah, this is what I You guys had a moment of recognition. Yeah, yeah it was, he was great. Uh, the comma has been in existence since the beginning because it's a little yes. in, in bookstore world. It's an iconic little logo. Like it's, yeah. if I see that comma in a bookstore context, I think of you guys. Yeah, we actually uh, also published one book by Barry Gifford, and uh, that book uh, we had to come up with a a brand logo for the publisher part, and uh, we used the comma as the image. So the first store, actually, wait. Let's go back. Um, what did you? What's your background? What did you do before Diesel? You were a, you were a grad student. Yeah. Well, before that, yeah, I mean, for me, the, how did wrote, you come to books? Yeah. To to me, I grew up in books. With my my mother was a huge, gigantic reader, and my parents were very big on reading. So that was 
great. But I had sort of an epiphany when I was about 14 in a bookstore in uh, Brookline, Boston. My brother was going to school up there. He was 11 years older than me. And, and uh, I don't know where my family went. I actually didn't care at the time because I was just in love with this bookstore. I love bookstores. And uh, What was the childhood bookstore that you were? The childhood, I went to a couple of them where I was growing up. Uh, in I grew up in Delaware. And uh, there was one that was a chain store. And I don't to right now know whether it was a Walden or, or, or a Dalton or, or okay. whatever. And then there was one, I, I can't quite remember the name of it. And it, it was one of those that's just like packed to the ceiling, you know, and overflowing uh, single proprietor kind of place. And uh, that's the one I really loved. But but this epiphany that I had was just, I was in the bookstore looking around and all of a sudden, you know, after having thoughts of, you know, I, I'd be an astronomer because I love stars or I'd be an archaeologist because I love history or something. Um, I thought, this is a great job because I was listening to these conversations. They sold music and books, paperbacks mostly. And the conversation from one customer to the next customer at the counter was like, oh my God, you know, it's from classical music, you know, to uh, robotics, to, you know, all Being kinds of crazy stuff. This is like 1971. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God. And the music was great. And people were dressed just like normal people. I, you know, my dad was, wore a suit and uh, I thought you can just like dress any way you want, play any music you want, have a conversation with a huge range of people on every kind of subject. This is a great job. I didn't do it again until I was 22 or 23, but uh, it sat there as a seed. Amazing. Uh, where in Delaware? My, my Wilmington. Wife, Wilmington. My, so just north Wilmington. Okay. My wife is from uh, the eastern shore of Maryland. Uh-huh. And we go to Rehoboth and Dewey. Yes. We yeah. did for a while. We haven't been there in a while, but uh, familiar yeah. with Delaware. Um, so the first incarnation of Diesel was in Emeryville. Oakland. Yeah. Oakland? Is Emeryville. That Emer- Emeryville. Yeah, it's its own little town. Um, I read recently that the... You had an Oakland store, yes, and it closed or it changed hands. Can yeah. you, you talk a little? Yeah, it's, it didn't close. Uh, so after five years and the sort of um, falling apart of the project that our landlords had sold us on in Emeryville, um, we were offered to move to the location we first wanted to be in, which was in North Oakland in Rockridge. There was a, what, what had originally been, interestingly, a car repair shop. So the diesel thing actually still applied. Oh, perfect, yeah. Um, had been a bowling alley after World War II. And then in the – and I bowled there once with a guy from Virgin Records, which is another story. But uh, in the early 80s, uh, it closed as a bowling alley and it was going to be a, um, an antique emporium. And we had wanted to go in there, but it was becoming this antique shop. And so uh, friends of ours that shopped in our store um, and our developers in, in Oakland, in North Oakland and Rockridge, they have the market hall there, which is fantastic, the kind of European market, um, said, if we bought this building, would you put your bookstore in it? They knew we were looking for other locations. And it was like, yes, that's exactly where we wanted to be originally, which is amazing. So we moved our store in in 2004, no, 94, 1994 to Rockridge in Oakland. And then you have Larkspur, Marin, is Marin uh-huh. County. And then at one point you had something in Santa Monica. Am I right? Or, uh, or in Malibu. Malibu, yeah. In Malibu. Um, yeah. 
how are you guys doing that? How did that work? Because this is a small business. Like bookstores is not like, even though like world domination is on everybody's mind in, in, in the back of our heads, it's <laughs> it's quite a logistical challenge to go from Northern to Southern California. Can you talk a little bit about that? Take me to, yeah, a, so, take me to a month in that era. So to give a, a pic, quick picture of it, it's... Uh, and when did, when so did 90, the other stores yeah, open? Yeah, 94 was Oakland. 2004 was Malibu. Okay. 2008 was Brentwood. And 2014, Larkspur. So that's the timeline on it. Um, as far as why and how, uh, we originally wanted to open in Malibu in the late 80s when we were thinking about it. But there was a great independent in Malibu. And then... Um, and then so cha- even then you were thinking about that because yeah, then Malibu. that was pre-internet. You and didn't- that's all us, uh, you know, camping in Malibu. I mean, this is not like we had any other connection but to the, the landscape of Malibu, yeah. which we still love. Yeah. And uh, we were drawn to that, but we didn't know the town really at all. And Malibu isn't then wasn't what it is now. Right. You know, it. I mean, it, it still had, you know, Johnny Carson lived out there and it still had, you know, the colony and all that. But it also had that surfer culture and working class. And yeah. There was, it was a very different place. Um, but anyway, so we had wanted to open, but we weren't going to, it's a small town, no point in opening when there's an independent there. And uh, then it was a crown, then it became a super crown uh, that opened in Malibu. And then that closed in a sort of family feud that was ridiculous. But uh, with the crown books, they all shuttered. And the independent had already closed. So um, in 2003, I guess it was, um, Allison had to recover from a surgery and went, we went down there. I said, why don't we just rent a place like somewhere, a little apartment or something in Malibu and you recover there and just like live in Malibu for three months, see what it's like and recover. Not really scouting. Well, scouting in the sense of getting to know what the town was like. If five years from now, we'd want to open a bookstore there or something. But every person we met when they knew that we were booksellers were like, please open a bookstore, please, please, please. So we, there were a couple spaces open and we talked to one Steve Soberoff um who at that time had the Cross Creek um mall there and where the movie theater was and he was enthusiastic about having a bookstore there he didn't give us a great rent he gave us a, a pretty fair rent though um something that's harder to find in Malibu these days but uh so we decided to do it which was just winging it. I mean, as an independent, you can kind of wing it any way you want. You suffer the consequences, but you you know you make all your own choices, uh, whatever those may be. And so that's how that one happened. Um, you know, we would joke with people that we just have a new creative strategic vision, which is to open a store four hundred miles away from the original one. Like that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, the nice thing about your your brand, if you will, is that it it it's, lends itself to be extended beyond. The, the city limits. Some, yeah. some bookstores are very kind of uh, associated with the environment that they're in, but like you've created sort of this open-ended brand. Yeah. You know? yeah. I don't know if that was part of the vision in the beginning, but it's it's made it's no. probably made things a little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, you I don't mean, have to sell it to the community as hard. Yeah. I was asked once by the American Booksellers Association to do a strategic planning panel, and I said, "What is it about us that you don't understand? Yeah. You know, we're an improvisatory." planning. That's how we do it. Sometimes uh, the best things in life, life is a lot like jazz. It's just, it's best when improvised. Absolutely. And I grew up as, as a musician and uh, improvisation is just, you know, just a part of how I look at everything. Poetry yeah. too, right? That's mm-hmm. a, so, uh, so that's how the Malibu thing happened. So basically since 2003, we've been doing that, going back and forth between the Bay Area and here. And we have deep roots in the Bay Area, obviously. Um, but we have a real passion for Southern California, and we always did. 
um, none of that sort of Northern California snobbishness towards. Yeah, well, I think we're kindred spirits because I'm from the I'm from the North as well, and I don't have any issue with Southern California. Yeah, like they're, they're, they they can coexist. Yeah, there's no. But we used to come down camping and then just drive in for art shows and plays and movies and music. So rich down here. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's the nexus to? Um, the country marts is that yeah. is that coincidental? Because well, in in Larkspur, it's a country mart, and are they all? I don't know the the economics of it. But yeah, are, is it all like a one operation? Can you two of two out of three of them bit? are? Yeah. So the Malibu Country Mart, I don't know whether I don't know the deep history of the real estate in L.A. So you know Brentwood Country Mart is from forty eight, and uh, the Malibu Country Mart. I don't know when it started. I want to say in the seventies, mid seventies. And completely different owners, so different no developer. relationship okay. whatsoever. The Brentwood Country Mart, though, was taken over by Jim Rosenfield, who's a local developer, and he also then took that idea and uh, set up the Montecito Country Mart that's in Montecito, which does not have a diesel bookstore. And then, uh, hint, hint, yeah, <laughs> get to it. <laughs> so, uh, Marin Country Mart up in Larkspur. So he approached us when we were in Malibu and said. I'd love to have a bookstore in the Brentwood Country Mart. He he's retained a lot of the things like barber and bookstore and and food place and yeah. Ready Chick and all that that has been here since the 40s and 50s. So there was a bookstore here, um, the Book Nook. It was called, run by a guy named Joe in a very tight space, and he's much beloved. You know, uh, he's not. I don't. I think he still lives in the area, but he doesn't have the bookstore and hasn't for quite a while. So uh, he wanted to have a bookstore there. And we didn't really want to go in here. Dutton's was still around, so we didn't want to do that. Um, it was just a mile down the street. But they're no longer. But yeah, yeah. so when he, he asked us for a few years, and we said no. And then Dutton's was closing, announced that they were closing. And How did he know about you? you? You were just in the Bay at this point, or had no? We in Malibu. Yeah, Malibu. yeah. Okay. so this is in the. Um, well, we opened here in two thousand eight, so this is between two thousand and four and okay. two thousand and eight. He saw that we'd opened out there, and he had heard about us, and so he approached us about opening. Uh, he and our developers, our landlords in um, Oakland, look for people that are doing the thing from their view, best, right? They kind of go, okay, who are the best people out there that we could have to come into our center or whatever? So um, so that's what he wanted. So he kept pressuring us and we said no. And then heard that Dutton's was closing and we uh, called, I'd called Doug Dutton and said, are you closing, closing? Or are you closing and moving? Are you going to reopen? Are you going to do something? And he said no. And uh, he'd already talked with Jim Rosenfield before, and he's not opening another bookstore. So we said, well, in that case, yes, we would do it. Because the right at that point, this whole neighborhood that's had 30, 30, 40 years of great book selling, Dutton's was a fantastic store. I don't know if you ever went there, but fantastic. Uh, they're used to that. They want it, they need it, and they aren't going to have it. So we started planning probably a month after Dutton's closed and then opened that fall. And let's go back to Oakland. Did you find a successor yeah, for the store? Yeah. Can you tell that story? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, There's just an article that came out today. I think it was um, where he My was. My research in, is a few weeks old. Where I'm he sorry. was, in, you know, <laughs> no, it was a, in Shelf Awareness, like a, a book selling um, newsletter that goes out 
every day. Anyways, Brad Johnson, who's the guy that took over Diesel and changed the name to East Bay Booksellers, he he has a slightly different version than we do as to how it happened, but basically it's the same. Uh, we were sitting and having a, a meeting, a manager's meeting with him and, and his co-manager, Chris, and uh, a store had been sold at Point Reyes Station. A guy from Green Apple, actually, the buyer at Green Apple, had bought this bookstore um, whose owners had started maybe 15 years ago and were actually customers of ours in Oakland and had talked with us about opening the bookstore. So there's, you know, that's how incestuous it is with book selling. But um, he had bought that store. And so our managers, Chris asked, so what what are you guys thinking in the future? You know, again, as, as if we're strategic planners. Uh, and we hadn't really thought about it. Um, I mean, you think about it as a fantasy, but you don't really think about it concretely. Like, how are we going to move these stores divest. along? Because we aren't yeah. planning on doing that. And so we said, we don't know. We don't really have a plan for it. And then after about five minutes, Allison said to Chris and Brad, why don't you guys buy it? Because both of these guys, Chris wants to open a bookstore. Brad just took to book selling like, like a duck to water. He was amazing. Um, after about a year of working there, all of a sudden it clicked. He got the total book selling bug. And they said, are you serious? And Allison looked at me to see if I would be serious about that. And I'm, yes. Like, these are the only people in the history of the bookstore that we felt like could take it over and would be great at taking it over. And so uh, Chris came back and said, no, he wasn't interested in doing it. I think he wants to do some other kind of bookstore than what our bookstore was. Brad really loved the way our bookstore was. And he said, I would like to figure out how to do this. We have to figure out the funding. So that's how that happened. Did you want to keep it diesel or did the name? You know, it, it didn't matter to us. It didn't matter. Uh, okay. He said, and he said it in this interview, he said, if there was only one diesel, we would have kept the name. But because there's others, he didn't want any confusion. And if he's, who knows what path he's going to take with that bookstore. Right. And so you could end up with a kind of dissonant thing. And also on the internet and such, there'd be confusion. Um, so he made that decision on his own, at, which I think was a smart decision. I, at first, I, I thought, why change it? And then a lot of the customers were upset about it, but... Um, it's actually worked out People really don't well. Like change. Then they, they don't. Get, they, they get used to it. Well, they don't. Yeah, they get anxious about what that's going to mean. And if you, a lot of people have said to me, "Oh, you don't have that bookstore anymore," and it's you know, it was last September, and it's like no, and they don't notice the differences because the same people are working there. The same kind of philosophy is mostly in place. He's made some great changes there that I think have been good. So that's that's a great segue. What are some things that one bookstore? can do ways they can differentiate themselves. Like how, how, how do you differentiate when you can't control price? Obviously environment and programming has something to do with it, but like, what are your thoughts on that? Like you said that he wanted to do something different or one of his partners wanted to go and go in a different direction. What does that mean? Well, I think in his case, and I, I don't know cause I haven't really talked to him about the details, but he's very big on, um, science fiction, fantasy, what's called speculative fiction. So curation. And especially, yeah, international that, and I think that's where Chris would be going. Um, and so he did specialize, you know, so there's, there used to be a ton of specialty bookstores. There are a lot less than there used to be. There still are, you know, cooking right. bookstores. There's, uh, some science fiction and fantasy bookstores, certainly used bookstores, but there used to be gay and lesbian bookstores in abundance. And, and LA has the world's only romance only bookstore. Yeah. Rick just Bottas, opened a I couple of years them, ago. Uh, yeah. A few, a few weeks ago. Right. Um, so there's a resurgence in specialty in niche. Yeah. And some of that, I'm, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you can 
package that together with yeah. other things and the events programs and things like that. And there used to be a mystery bookstore in Westwood. You know, right. mystery bookstores were probably the most common of the specialty bookstores. So Diesel is, is it, you're a generalist bookstore. Is it fair mm-hmm. to say that? Yes. That label? But you have limited selling space. It's not like yes. a, it's not like a, definitely not a Barnes and Noble size and it's no. not even a, not even a City Light size. No. So how do you, how do you guys approach curation and what are your thoughts on curation? Like walk me through the, thread the needle for me on how you stock the store. And Yes. Yeah, so we, uh, from the start, we thought of ourselves as fine, independent neighborhood bookstore, right? So, um, Personally, I think every neighborhood should have one, uh, whether it's, but something like us, where you're doing very careful selection based on who lives there, what they might need, what they might want, um, out of the 300,000 titles that get published every year in the United States, not counting independently published things. So uh, that's not an easy process, but um, we try and cover a, a rich range. And what you're doing when you do that, kind of going um, title rich rather than lots of quantities with each title. Um, City Lights in, in San Francisco does that very successfully. They have sort of a specialty, but um, for us, it's across the subjects that we think people are going to be interested in. Um, I can't describe it much better than that. You know, the easiest way is to, we think, oh, you know, he would like this, she would like this. It's very reader-centric. So it depends on the people that shop in the store changes what we buy. People help too. In they advance. come in and they ask, do you have this? And yeah. Over years, you just kind of develop a sense. Right, and it changes all the time. It changes with the people that work there as to what their strengths are and what their interests are. And it changes with how the culture changes. It's very um, fluid in that way. It's, uh, it, you know, we have a certain amount of data. We have a certain amount of um, sales history for the things that have already been published in the past with authors that we are already established. But um, for the new authors, it's, is this something that we think is either vitally necessary for the culture or that we think our readers actually want? But the bookstore, our book, our kind of bookstore functions on people discovering things they didn't know they wanted. So what, from the very moment we opened, we had a lot of display space in Emeryville and people would come in and they'd go, you know, I'm not immediately seeing the things I'm looking for, though they're here, which is sort of weird because it's such a small store. But what I am seeing, I want more than what I came in looking for. And that's great, right? Yeah. That's, that's because why foreground all the things everybody knows that they want um, when you can foreground all the things people don't know exist, right? But that mm-hmm. they would want because, I mean, I, I also kind of describe it like relative to the internet. The internet says you made these past choices, this is who you are. Sort of tying you to your past. But we aren't really like that. We, we're trying to be something else, maybe more, maybe different, but we're trying to be something else. Or allowed to change. Yeah. yeah. And we often don't even know what that is, right? That's what the, you know, the serendipity or discovery of bookstores is, but it's also what book selling is about. It's like, so get, get a sense as to who this person is and then get a feel for where they what would really excite them? Like what would be great for them? And that could be what would be great for them, you know, in in a self-help book, or it could be what would be great for them in a science fiction book or a fiction book. And so we kind of are giving people their future selves or the possibilities of their future selves, as opposed to the past that they aren't really all that interested in. They may do it out of habit. Right. And people love that, right? So that, I mean, I think that's a sort of, I mean, it is sort of talked about in, 
about independent bookstores, but I think that aspect of discovery and identity is a huge part of why people love independent bookstores and why they're, you know, if you talk to a city manager, they, they say independent bookstores are the top one in always in the top three that people would want to have in their communities. Right. So that's why. Well said. That's an interesting factoid too. It's, it's probably so true. Like, uh, I didn't even realize it, but like if you're, as soon as you buy a place and you live in a neighborhood, um, and you could make a list of things that you would want in that neighborhood to have, I, th- there's, yeah, bookstore would be in the top three without even blinking an eye, even for people that don't necessarily, you know, devour books. It's right. just, it's just the idea, uh, knowing that there's a place where ideas are being exchanged freely around the corner. Right, and a kind of uh, it's a sanctuary for tons of people in all kinds of circumstances. Whenever something so true horrible happens, people will go into a bookstore. And I was just talking about this with somebody about why there aren't more bookstores in hospitals, like why the hospital gift yeah. stores are almost so depressing. Yeah, a bookstore would be a great having a bookstore in a hospital would be a great environment to kind of just get lost for a minute while you're waiting for a result or yeah. you know you're you're in between visiting hours or something. Right. Yeah. No, I think it'd be a great sanctuary in that. Now, when you look at it that way, though, then you go, well, it's a great place to go and a great place to be, but how does it survive, right? right? And that's where how the business part comes in. Sure. Yeah, and that's where it's tricky. Um, this is a quirky question uh, for you because you get to speak from both sides, Northern and Southern California. But I'm, I'm always interested to to find out, like, you're, you're here every day and you see what's selling. Is there anything that's been selling recently that you're actually kind of surprised by? I don't know. It's a little hard for me to be surprised. I, I guess I'm so eager to be surprised, you know, for for people to buy things that you're, wow, that's that's wonderful. You know, uh, we were really pleased the new Michael Andachi just came, came out. But I was a little surprised, I was saying this to Allison this morning, how many people have been anticipating it. And that's a very uh, Southern California thing. Southern California is so much more on top of what's about to happen. The culture. Yeah, the yeah. culture. There and it's, you know, everybody's business is tied up with it. Yeah. Everybody's lifestyle is tied up with it. Their conversations with their friends, the networking that happens here. All of that depends on you being culturally informed in a way that, you know, maybe the only other place would be New York in this country where that that focus. And I I think it may even be stronger here as far as paying attention to that because of the music business and the film business, TV, all that. What's the biggest difference between a Bay Area buyer versus an LA buyer? Just in terms of, I guess, you look at it from a point of inventory. Like, what are what are they buying up there that they're not buying here, and vice versa? Yeah, we sell a lot more art books here. You know, some of it has to do with economics, so it depends on sure, what neighborhood you're in. Right. So, um, and in Oakland, for example, the neighborhood is changing. You know, it's gentrifying along with the whole Bay Area. Um, so that means more disposable income for higher end books. So that uh, art books, which coffee table books. Yeah, one and- of the managers up in Oakland said, you know, if you counted how many times wonderful books are are picked up in Oakland as if they were sales, it would be equal to what happens in the Brentwood store. So uh, people are just as interested in the books, but they can't afford them. So sure. there's that. The other thing is that kind of currency, cultural currency. And uh, if something is hot and it's out there, um, it will sell very quickly in Los Angeles. Up in the Bay Area, there will even be a resistance. Traditionally, there will be a resistance to it because it's hot. They will step back away from it. We'll end up with the same number of sales, but people will buy them over a longer period of time 
up north than in LA because in LA you need it now. Yeah. There's an immediacy here that's not yeah. there. It's a little more I also think and and this, you know, I don't I don't know how people in the Bay Area would feel about it, but I think books have um I don't like this word, but uh gravitas, you know, like books have a certain kind of substantial um honorific status in LA that they don't have in the Bay Area. You know, so on the one hand, uh, being uh, intellectual and politically savvy in the Bay Area is very important. But I think there's a, a certain kind of cultural traditionalism in L.A. too because people are so culturally engaged. They have a respect for the history. Uh, it's interesting. You know, like if do you talk— show, Do Angelino showcase their books more? Is, is that some of it? Like, uh, I don't know about that. You know, I, I never leave the bookstore. I don't know what people have in their house, yeah. how they display them. But— uh, no, I think, you know, if you talk to a 25-year-old person that's wanting to get into the movie business, they know an awful lot of history, Yeah. right? They've really researched that, and they, they know that it's important for them as far as their jobs and everything, but they're also, there's a fundamental uh, engagement that's like in the blood of people in L.A. for cultural stuff. And it's it's not how, they're, how L.A. is perceived outside of L.A., but to like a friend of mine who is a university sales rep, has, he had the option because of his job, he could either live in the Bay Area or he could live down here. And he chose to live down here. And I was like, why? Why did you choose L.A.? And he said, because it's a great vortex that sucks all these cultural people from all over the world into this place to do work or the hope of doing work. And then once they get here, whatever their job is, there's still extremely creative people that want to do things outside of what their job is. And so they set up theater groups and they set up, there's just this dynamism outside of work even, right? That's just creative overflow. And uh, Vortex is a great word to and, describe it. And he said he loves that environment, right? To be around so many creative people uh, in LA who are, who are acting on it. You know, they're putting it out there on the street and they're... Um, creating all kinds of new businesses, all kinds of new, that dynamism is very attractive. For sure. Well said. So just to come full circle, you've, you've opened locations, you've closed some of the ones that closed, what was it that wasn't working? Okay. So they, um, so there's basically four stores, right? So the two are still open, one we sold and the only one that closed was the Malibu one. Okay. And, uh, that was basically real estate. So, uh, just rents going up. Uh, yeah. And, and interest, you know, real estate is one of the biggest challenges to people. You know, I mean, we're in a, a time of incredible inequity, right? And, and incredible um, disruption, which is often seen as just a plain positive, but is actually highly destructive to a lot of people's lives and a lot of businesses and a lot of communities. Um, so the real estate problem in Malibu was severe so that the... Uh, the, the property that we were in had sold for $6 million in 1989 and in 2007 sold for $66 million. And uh, then I think it sold again for $89 million and then again for $120 million, right? And this is just a, a little L-shaped mall in Malibu. Um, now, the forces that would do that, their relationship to the community is – zilch at that point. Steve Sober. Even the states or the, you know, if they're international investors. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. I mean, it was a hedge fund that bought it, but you know, so they, uh, Steve Soberoff was 
you know, an on the ground developer, you know, who understood what Malibu was and subsidized the theater that was there and had a, an array of businesses that served the community, you know. And uh, when it was taken over by those guys, it became a completely different thing. And so our relationship to the community was the same, but our ability to be able to be in the community was not. So it was pure real estate. And uh, that's still a problem. I mean, it'd be great for there to be a bookstore there. It's ridiculous in a way for there not to be. It's a small community, but it's... But it's a very affluent community. And and a, and a huge proportion of writers yeah. and uh, screenwriters and, you know, Christopher Nolan. and you know, I mean, just uh, all kinds of people throughout that industry, as well as people who write nonfiction and fiction live so, out there. So how do you overcome the real estate problem? Is it is it really as simple as having a landlord that is willing to understand the importance of a bookstore in that particular spot? Is it yeah. is it a is it a one-to-one conversation or one-to-many conversation? Is it as simple as that? Yeah. I mean, if if that's simple, but yes, that's the only I mean, some people have their own buildings. I think Romans has their own building and has been around for a hundred and some years, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh Green Apple has its own building in, in San Francisco and Mitch Kaplan and books and books and is purchasing one of his buildings. Uh, he has many bookstores, but, uh, that is a big relief for, for a bookstore. It allows allows you to hedge. Yeah. It allows you to tap into that money if you need it. But, um, outside of that, you need somebody who has that kind of vision and, uh, you know, if it's, if it's entirely a financial, ter- if property in a community that's, you know, ideally for everybody's use is just a transaction on a figure sheet, that's not likely to happen. So it takes some kind of local developer that has a division, uh, a, a vision for how, how it would be, you know, what would, and so Jim Rosenfield has a particular vision for what the Brentwood Country Mart is. He has a particular vision and bookstore is at the heart of it. I mean, I think he would say that himself. It is the heart of the Larkspur Marine Country Mart. It's the heart of this Country Mart to have that bookstore there. And people feel that way who shop here, right? They're very glad to have this bookstore here. Um, But can he command the same rent from us as from other people? You know, I don't know the real estate business. I know that he's very supportive of this bookstore um, and the bookstore at Marine Country Mart. So, and the other landlords that we had in Oakland Similarly, they saw it as something that the community needed that would help that part of the street stabilize and be dynamic and be an interesting place for people to go. It was halfway to the, from their shop to the library. You put it right there and it'll help to support all the restaurants around it and sure. vice versa, right? Absolutely. It's, but that kind, Residual of, effect. that kind of vision of choosing your tenant, not by how much they can pay, but by the mix of businesses – some landlords have it, some don't. It's rare. Yeah, well, I actually heard a similar story. That's how the last bookstore happened. They have, you know, 26,000 square feet of selling yeah. space. And, you know, the landlord wanted that place to exist in the form that it exists in now. And effectively, he's allowing that bookstore to exist. Right. And so, but again, finding someone like that, was a, it was a completely happenstance, serendipitous thing. It wasn't some, you know, there wasn't like a, a list of landlords and just knocking out on a spreadsheet, right. you know, hey, I want to open a bookstore. So there's a little bit of, you know, uh, timing and all of that. But that's a little concerning because I, I feel like we talked, like you mentioned at the beginning, I feel like more communities could have small bookstores, you know, like in terms of 
footprint. Oh yeah. Um, and you just have to find willing landlords, but uh, it is a transaction. Yeah, there's a bunch of things. I mean, there's been great growth since 2008 in um, independent bookstores, and I know you know this, but um, changing that story has been difficult. You know, people just, they look at the future like it's a line, and the future has never been a line, and, and, and it's never been, it never goes that way, you know. Uh, so, the, so the idea that bookstores would be, Obliterated. I mean, what caused the reduction in bookstores from 1989? You know, they're 3,900 to 1,380 in 2008 to 2,300 now. What caused that? Well, Barnes and Noble and Borders fought each other. They put up bookstores next to where there were independent bookstores that did it, and then they, um, then Amazon came, and then that didn't help. Right, that hurt a lot of bookstores. And then there was a generational thing because a lot of bookstores opened in the '60s and '70s when reading was really um, just a vital part of what everybody was doing and talking about. And what the, the media diet was smaller then too. Yeah, exactly. So pieces of the pie. Um, and so then, why are they growing? Right. I mean, you can kind of. It's always easier question. to look yeah. at back at what what caused something. We can see the complex factors that would go into putting bookstores out at the time. It's not usually the one at the time they were thinking of, right? 1989, whatever line everybody had for what the future was, it didn't follow that line because it never does. Um, so what is it that in the in the last 10 years has, has changed that? You know, some of it is borders closed. So all kinds of markets opened up. The other is people consistently, no matter what these disruptions are, saying these disruptions are hurting my community, I still want a bookstore. Like, stop destroying our bookstores. And some developers listen to that. Some cities listen to that. Some cities provide development funding for bookstores to exist. There's book deserts across this country that it's it's obscene, right? Does the city, when the city gets involved, does the money flow to the landlord? Does it flow to the business? I think it usually flows to the landlord. landlord. To subsidize the... Yeah, and sometimes okay. it's it's city property and, you yeah. know... Um, and sometimes it's city private partnerships. Um, there's so many different versions, you know, like uh, there's a store in, in New Hampshire, not New Hampshire, in uh, Rhode Island that has um, private partnership and that, you know, it's working with the city to develop. And you can, as far as city development funds, reinvigorating downtowns and stuff, and you can get some kind of funding for that. And that's a great use of it, right? To put a bookstore in there really is smart. Um, but the real tragedy is that a lot of bookstores don't exist in book deserts around the country, right? If the if the economic class goes low enough, there's no bookstore there. Yet the real estate is cheap, right? That's a horrible trend. Yeah, right? it is. That's that's a that's one of the many nightmares of uh, the current economic climate. You said Amazon, so I didn't have to. Thank you. You've heard of it, though, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are they an afterthought <laughs> at this point? For you, do you wake up in the morning and think about them as far as it, how it's impacting your business, or is it sort of is it, is it a new normal sensibility? Do I think about them all the time? I, no, uh, I mean I see you know the the destruction of a lot of main streets and retail. You know the idea that it is only it's not just books. No, yeah. that there's only hair shops and coffee shops and and restaurants, um, and that that kind of full community. Um, providing of goods, you know, I think about that. I think about all the delivery of goods one package at a time and, and how that's 
really not helping climate change in any way whatsoever. The um, and- yeah, you know, you can talk about an efficiency on one hand or convenience on another hand. But there's always a cost. But the cost is pretty severe. I think about them, I think a lot about labor issues. So I think about them with regard to labor issues. And uh, I mean, what they've tried to be is the mass merchant, the ultimate mass merchant, right? They, he said he wanted to be the Walmart of the internet. And I think in every way, you would say he, he succeeded in his ambition, right? And uh, the question is whether that ambition is, is good for us. Like, um, and that's up to each person, you know, as to what that is. But there's certain things where efficiency is good, and I'd say cultural things are not one of them, right? Two, two things. I want to play devil's advocate. I, I actually just I talked about this yesterday, too. In your, and this is just like a worldview opinion. Yeah. Do you think that uh, that Amazon existing has actually increased the reader community? Like it's created a bigger gene pool of readers. You, you mentioned, uh, um, what was the term you used? Uh, desert. Uh, yeah, book desert. Book deserts. They've kind of filled that a little bit. And there's this notion that information wants to be free. That's like a tech, that's like a Silicon Valley uh-huh. term. Yeah. On one hand, like from the devil's advocate side of it is like, have they created a bigger population of potential customers for independent bookstores? Or is that just, is there no, is there no connection at all whatsoever? Um, I'm sure they have. I mean, I, you know, getting books out is great any which way that it happens, right? So I'm good with that. If, you know, Borders and Barnes and Noble, um, there are some people, like as, as far as their worldview, they'd say, oh, that's horrible because they're, they're fine, primarily um, profit-driven businesses while independent bookstores are not. Um, it doesn't mean independent bookstores don't want to make a profit. That just isn't why they exist. Right. The and, motivations are different. And if you buy a media company and decide you're going to open, you know, a thousand outlets, your prime motivation is likely not cultural and community oriented. It's it's profit oriented and efficiencies oriented. So uh, I think though that Borders and Barnes and Noble, it's a tragedy that they closed in the way they did. I mean, what I would like to see is is, you know, thousands of independent bookstores opening up in their places. Um, your question is partially dependent on whether you think there's universal access to the internet and to being prime members, and that's not true. So um, the book desert thing still goes on. I mean, the reason that books were chosen in the first place was to capture luxury market uh, people people that are higher educated, people that have more income, and to use books as the lost leader to get them into the prime ecosystem, to get them into the ecosystem, and then to milk them for all the other things that they buy. And that's the business model, and it it works. I mean, mass merchant stuff like that has always worked. I mean, that's how Wonder Bread, you know, you go in and you undercut everyone else, and then Wonder Bread is what you eat. And then 30 years later, after that disruption, people go... But didn't bread once taste good? Wasn't it once good for you? I swear it was. I can vaguely remember grandma had good bread. And then we have bakeries like Justa and stuff. And, you yeah. know, and uh, it may cost a lot more, right? Um, but that's what everybody actually wants. What, don't you kind of want nutritional things? It's a so, great analogy. I love that. And that's the model. And that model is, we've, you know, we're kind of suckers for it. We've, it's happened to us over and over and over again. This kind of like, this is the new great thing. You know, 
Uh, you don't know what you want until someone tells you, kind of. That's right. the whole, the whole the Steve Jobs mentality of, well, what is this device? Well, people don't know that they need it yet. Yeah. Once we show it to them, they're going to realize, how was my life any different? Right. They sell it as we're answering a need, but actually they're creating a need. Yeah. Yeah. And they're creating an ecosystem around all of those. Yeah, and for what need. purpose? I talk to people about driverless cars. Do you want a driverless car? Do you want to drive? And, and almost every single person says no. And then the news, everything says driverless cars are coming. You have to do them. We, we are going to do them. Well, who, who says? I mean, <laughs> do we have no choice in it? And in a, quote, free market economy, it would be people wanting that. In a democracy, it would be people wanting that. But that isn't what we're getting. And so what is that? Interesting. It's an engineered economy. I, I mean, I think we're in the the time of the ultimate time of social engineering, right? Like that started in the 30s or 20s or whatever, where they really got scientific about it. But now they're really getting systematic about it. And I don't mean that in a huge conspiracy theory. I think everyone is buying into the same values at each class level. So, you know, if you're the owner of a gigantic corporation like Amazon, social engineering you know, really keeps you going every day. You, you love that. And I think that's what they're about. And does it bring benefits? Does it bring, you know, that sort of economic benefit? Um, if you reduce competition, right, this is a problem. This is more a law problem. So we're kind of worldview over to law. But if you reduce competition, is that good, right? Like the argument for Wonder Bread is that it was cheap. So more people could buy it. And then they could use money for other things like buying books or buying, you know, that was the, the way it was sold. But if the end result is so that they can conquer a market, they become a monopoly, and then you just take whatever they give you. However bad Wonder Bread is, that's all you got. And, and how's your nutrition now? They'll get into the pharmaceutical business to handle your bad health, you know. So true. Uh, it may sound cynical, but... Um, you know, seems sort of factual. <laughs> um, I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to knock out some important questions. What do you say to people that want to open a bookstore today? What are some keys to making it work? Uh, rent. Real estate is obvious, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and getting, making sure the rent is, is manageable, you know, um, which for a bookstore is much more difficult than for, you know, we have, compared to a clothing store or something, um, you know, they have... 170 items in seven sizes or something like that. Um, and we have 10,000 or 15,000 titles that change every day, right? So the complexity and level of, of complexity of that is massive. Um, and so uh, the rent needs to be less than for most kinds of retail, the fixed prices. I mean, you referred to that earlier. So all of that. Um, I encourage people to do it. Because I, because people want it, right? And we know that they want it because when asked, that's what they say. And we know that people want it because we see the benefit of it. As a bookseller, like for me, it's a, it's a humble living. It's a great life. You know, it's, it's uh, very, I cannot even describe how exciting it is to be helping people in the ways, the diverse ways in which you do it every day. Just the conversations that you mentioned, going from music to this, to politics, to astronomy. Right. You don't get that anywhere else. Or how to handle grief. I mean, it, right. it's it's sort of like, a, it's part party. A bookstore is always kind of a party, you know, playing around with ideas and, and having fun. And then it's a counseling session, you know, and it's also kind of street theater. Um, so all of that, 
is great. And you, you can do meaningful work in a community that it matters, individual by individual. You know, I've helped people with their doctor's thesis. I've helped people through their grief, you know. Um, and that's not a retail situation, right? So that's it's a very different kind of thing. But that's extremely satisfying work. And, uh, and you get to meet all these authors, go to all these author dinners, you know, go meet publishers, the authors come, you get to hear their points of view on things, you get to meet people you'd never meet otherwise. All of that is great as far as a life. So then you have to figure out how can you make it a living? You know, how can it be sustainable? And that's where they have to do hard work. So it's, um, but their resources are out there and everybody sure. shares them. You know, if you go up to any of us, there, there's a a huge number of people that have mentored in some way with any bookseller that's been around for 30 years. Um, one more question before a quick lightning round. What changes would you like to see within the book industry as a whole? I know that, I know that the ship turns very slowly, but um, <laughs> one of the things that keep co- keeps coming up, and I've had a lot of discussions with people about, is bundling. You know, a physical object with a digital copy with an audio. Are you a proponent of that? Is that a change that you think is a good change? Or are there any others in a similar vein that you have kind of have been writing down over the years? Yeah, bundling is good. Uh, I mean, I think that's there are a lot of people that don't care about it, um, customers that don't care about it. I think it's a little overrated, and it's part of that lure of the future and the technological. Um, but especially audiobooks that people, um, I think ebooks are less of an issue in bundling, and audiobooks are a bigger issue. Right. Being able at to this read point. it here and then jump in your car and continue where you left off. Yes. And I think that that is a very, I don't, I don't see why that doesn't happen. I mean, that should happen. Within the industry, you know, you can get kind of into the nitty gritty. So, like, there, there should be, there's a program in Britain for, uh, uh creating one system for invoicing across, you know, hundreds of vendors we deal with and they all have different ways of doing, but it's all books that they're selling, selling us. And it's highly complicated and Baroque and old school, like 19th century feeling. And, uh, clarifying that would help publishers, um, recognizing the value of the discovery that happens in independent bookstores in a financial way, as far as the discount structure, that's probably the most, the thing that most needs to change because it's out of all relationship to um, what the realities of running a bookstore are right now. And what the reality is actually is to how people, if 70% of the people discover through some means or another from independent bookstores what books are important and why they're important, but they don't buy them there, um, that needs to be addressed somehow financially because the last thing you want is for those independent bookstores to not be there to provide the richness of the culture as a cultural advocate. That's the, that would be the nightmare scenario. And if publishers don't address that relatively soon, that'll have a consequence, you know, that'll, there'll be less bookstores and that's going to hurt the whole industry and publishers most pointedly. But, uh, so those are the two changes. I mean, real estate is an outside the book business thing. That's a society wide, uh, global problem. Uh, but within the book industry, I'd say those are the main things. I mean, it's ironic that if you were a butcher and you sold the best meat, you know, grass-fed, all this stuff, and then your supplier for meat said, you know what you should do is, is sell a lot more cookware and socks and candles and stuff in your store so that you're more viable. You'd go, well, why don't you give me a better deal on meat? Like, why should I be going into socks when I'm a butcher? So if I'm a bookseller, why should I be going into sidelines 
because you don't give me a good enough discount, right? That's the way the publishers are right now. And it's strange. Wouldn't publishers want to have more of their books discovered and provide the discount to make sure that 90% of our stores are books and not 75 or 70%? You don't have a lot of non-book stuff. I no, we refuse to do it. I like I like that. That's, I, I mean, we I, have journals and things I which wondered. are considered sidelines, but they're so intimately connected with writing and Pen, writing and pens and notebooks are, are those are I don't I consider those almost bookish because people yeah. write and they take notes. Oh yeah. But I noticed that about your store, and I, and I like it because I when I go into a bookstore, I want to look for books. I don't want to be distracted by trinkets and. Tchotchkes, yeah, you know, but there, there's a lot of bookstores that actually quite love it because it keeps them in business. Yeah, it's part of our commitment and passion for bookstores. It just drives us insane to reduce the amount of inventory, inventory. of books. Yeah. So that's why we ha- that's why we have such a variety of titles. But that said, I don't have a judgment of bookstores that do it as a way of keeping a bookstore in that community. Right. Right. At, Every community is different. Yeah. But the real problem of it is that kind of um, the financial structure, the discount structure from publishers is off and the real estate is too high. Yeah. What does diesel look like in five years? Uh, I imagine there will be more um, audio streaming, which we do on our website. That Are you broadcast? You've, I've seen some videos online. You do some of Occasionally, your- we have excerpts up there, but I was meaning more like downloads of, of audio streaming, like books. Uh, we have Libro FM that we right. work with. And I think that ideally, uh, you know, if you're talking about the future, um, prediction is usually a mistake, but, um, but throwing out your dream of what it would yeah. be. I mean, as, as far as diesel is concerned, it would be that whatever way in which people, um, whatever format they want to read or experience books, um, that they would get it from an independent bookstore and that including us. And so that if you're getting an ebook, you go, why would I, it's a cultural thing. That's important. Why would I get it from Amazon or why would I get it from some other, you know, Walmart or whatever? I should get it from somebody that actually advocates for that. And actually I should pay attention to what their recommendations are because those are often good and they like the same things I do and you know and so uh ebooks and audio through the website I think will happen as far as otherwise be right here now uh we put our Larkspur store up for sale um uh, two weeks ago so we're breaking news yes breaking news so we're uh we're going to be completely centered you know this this 15 year back and forth to the Your Bay Monday Area is, stops now. it will stop. See, I was wondering that in the back of my mind because it gets, uh, just driving across town is a headache, man. Yeah, six hours is something. I mean, I read uh, out loud books to Allison in the car when we drive up there. My wife and I do the same thing. It's great, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I, I, was, I just talked to Gallery Bookshop in Mendocino. Yeah. And we, it's one of our favorite spots. And, yeah, it's and, great. Uh, I would buy a book from there. I discovered Joan Didion there. Uh huh. And wow. I read the Year of Magic. I was a latecomer. You know. Yeah, um, but give, give me a break. No, uh, I'm not. I, and, I'm not. It's just wow. What? A, uh, how I envy you to read Joan Didion I read for the, the first year time. Year of Magical Thinking, driving down from Mendocino back to Oakland, and I read it out loud to oh, her. She's a, lucky. Yeah. Um, so it's so cool. I didn't mean to cut you off there, but no, yeah, we, do the, we do the same thing. We read. No, it I had an incredible experience with that book. Uh, taking a, a flight to the East Coast, and uh, I started writing down lines from that book, and four times this happened. This never happened before with me before. Uh, I wrote down lines from the book, and they were compo- I was in that, uh, that a formal feeling comes, which is a 
poetry phrase, you know, that all of a sudden you have this feeling like, oh, a poem is coming. And so, but it was her words. So I, I wrote down one line, wrote down another, maybe 12 lines, read it. It's like a poem, but it's all her words, sentence oh, yeah. after sentence. So I stopped, set it aside, kept reading the book. Another completely different sentence structure, wrote down, did it again. Four times this happened through the reading of this book. And then it's like a rosary for her husband. Yeah. You know, there was a rosary for his brother that, that was, that he wrote. And, uh, but it was all Joan Didion's words. And I had the opportunity to give it to her because oh, wow. she came to our store in Malibu. I'm getting chills actually yeah. remembering this because she's so intense to me and just, yeah. so, so oh, yeah. she's such a, Amazing. so I said, I had this strange experience. I explained it just like I did to you. And, and, uh, and so I said, it's just, it's a, it's a rosary for your husband. It's all your words. It's from that book. And I just want you to have it. She sent me a postcard a month later. And she says, that was a beautiful precy of my book. Like just as a out, like a, a description of the book and a condensation of the book. It was, it was beautiful. Thank you. That's so special. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but the, the whole experience of it, you know, she's such a powerful writer. Yeah. And, uh, but that's the kind of thing, you know, you get exposed in a bookstore to somebody hands you something like that. That's a, it's a life changer. Yeah, I was. I told the uh, Christy, she's the owner yeah, of the store. Christy Olson uh, Day. Olson Day, yeah. She, yeah. Um, I, the, the Amazon story for that was that I, I loved, uh, I was, we were up there on vacation off the grid. You know, there was no internet connection in our yeah. place. And I wanted this book. Someone had told me about it. You need to read it because we were going through a thing and it's mm -hmm. like a great thing to read when you're going through a thing. Yes. So, um, I tried to get it on Amazon and then I, it was going to take two days to get to me. This was 10 years ago or yeah. so. I was like, that's not feasible. Is there a bookstore in Mendocino in the town? I'm like, yeah, there is a, there's a, there's a bookstore. And I went in there and I was hell bent on that one book. And it just happened to be the one book that on that, on the road that was face out. Yep. And she told me that she was actually like doing a thing, like a display for her. And she's convinced that it happened around the same time. Yep. And it was just like destiny it meant yep. to happen. Yes. But uh, also I'll never forget it. And that's an independent bookstore moment for the ages. Like, yes. That's the re reason why I told my wife, Katie, when we walked out, like, that's why these places are never going to go away. Right. Because um, instant gratification is one thing, but like there was a place that, that fulfilled a need. And the fact that Mendocino has, at one point, they had three bookstores on this tiny little yeah. cliff yeah. speaks volumes about the community. Yes, you know? it does. They have a used bookstore, they have gallery, and then they had a third one, but it closed. It's but, a very small place. But still, yeah, right. just to be yeah. able to do it. Anyway, it's wonderful. Thank you for sharing the Joan Didion thing. I love yeah. I, I have a, So we have a bookshelf at home, and... I have two books. These are the juxtaposition is a little weird, but I have two books that are face out. Mm -hmm. One of them is that Year of Magical Thinking, yeah. and the other one is Agassiz's Open. Oh, yeah. I just I love tennis and I yeah, just love yeah. his story, and um, and they're both on the same little corner. So yeah, it's great. What are you reading at the moment? Uh, right now, I tend to read a fiction and a nonfiction at least at the same time. Sometimes three or four books. Christie's the same way. Yeah, she so nonfiction in the morning and fiction at night. Oh, really? She's yeah. very organized. Yeah. yeah, I'm not so organized. But so Leif Anger, who did Peace Like a River, uh, that novel has a, a fantastic new novel that's not out yet. It's called Virgil Wander. Um, it's about a guy who has just um, survived a, a car accident um, that involved the car going into water up at Lake Superior. And uh, he may have died or may not have died and then been saved. Um and he's, he has a concussion, has all these strange symptoms going on while he's going through the town. It's a beautiful, beautifully written, funny book. And I'm in the middle of that. I'm reading that out loud to Allison, actually. Then I'm also reading that book called The Opposite of Hate, 
by Sally Cohn, you know, who was mm-hmm. on. She was just on uh, Bill Maher. I yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it just came out. Yeah. So I was uh, slowly reading that one. I sort of dip into that every now and then. But it's, um, you know, it kind of deconstructs the whole mythologizing of the idea of we we just are tribal and there's nothing we can do about it, which I've been hearing a lot lately, which just irritates me. Um, this sort of uh, misapplied evolutionary biology to cultural things. Um, and it shows all the research that shows that, no, uh, you can change your tribe. Pretty easily, people change their tribe. They associate with people, they value people, and they change their sense of what their identity is, um, depending on a whole bunch of positive factors, right? So, um how do you decide what to read? What are your filters? Oh, uh, you know, I, What's I'm your primary filter. I'm tortured by that question. I ask booksellers that all the time because so many booksellers like Christie or whatever, you know, it's highly organized. And they, well, uh, some people will say to me, well, I'm obviously re- reading the books from next season. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Okay. Uh, I read all over the place and I, you know, my job for the store is to be everywhere at one, like to, to know, uh, I buy the university presses and the small presses and all those things. And Allison, my partner, buys all the large publishers. Um, so she keeps her pulse on the society. And I'm kind of looking for what people might be interested the edges. I'm, I'm busy about the edges. So um, I have to say it's mostly random. There are things that like Leaf Anger reading because of meeting him, you know, going to an author dinner or something like that. So I will, there's that kind of, uh, what I feel like is it's my responsibility to read if I'm going to go meet the author. Um, and then there's uh, the books that I think are interesting from all time. It's it's very chaotic. Are there any writers out there that you'd like to mention that you think should be getting more attention right now? I mean, there are writers, you know, some writers when they, when they pass away or uh, I guess I started out in used books, and so I often look to these great people in the past that I worry about. After they die, they have a little resurgence, but then who's going to advocate them? They aren't going to go on tour anymore, you know? So like Adrienne Rich, when she died, it, it was great how many things were published about her. She's not an unknown by any means, but she's so important culturally, like now and forever. Um, why How is she going to stay in front? When you have all these small stores, they can only have so much backlist. So how are they going to stay current and in circulation, right? John Berger, who died not so long ago, is another not an unknown person, but not as well known as as I think he should be. There's a great uh, poet named Jen Bervin who did the beautiful, gorgeous Nothings, which was Emily Dickinson's uh, poems. Uh, it was an art book, really. But she did a book called Silk Poems that uh, she's just kind of working quietly and feverishly somewhere. Um so there's constantly new writers that you're going, oh, that's great. But at least they're getting reviewed sometimes, hopefully, and they're getting displayed in the bookstores. But there's a lot of older writers um, that you worry about them disappearing. Um, thank God, you know, a lot of publishers are reprinting people like that. But uh, I don't know if anybody's coming to mind right now that needs needs more attention. It's an interesting question. What book have you recommended the most over the years to people? Uh, see, I te- it's, I'm so tailored to who the person is. There are a lot of booksellers that sell their favorites, and I, I do that too, uh, you know, because that's what comes to your mind a lot of times. 
but I'm so busy trying to figure out who that person is and go into the area. I mean, it's exciting to me to, if somebody says, you know, I just love natural history writing, and then they say, I've read, you know, Annie Dillard, and I've read, you know, goes through a whole long list, and then it's like, okay, so who do I know of that they're going to just go crazy for? Probably, you know, John Berger's To the Wedding is a book that I've recommended a ton. Um, it's a novel, so beautiful. Um, I tend to like really beautiful writing. Uh, right now, over the last 10 years, probably Savage Detectives by Roberto Bolaño, which I never wanted to end and is one of the only two books I've ever read that have affected my dream life, where I dreamed like the, the novel. You Not, just gave me a new question. Thank you. <laughs> so, it, a book if you never wanted to end. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the dream. It and was, what, what book has changed your dream yeah, yeah. I love that. It's so amazing. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the Bolaño, Savage Detectives, and then Murakami's um, Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. Those were the two that, for maybe three weeks, my dreams were altered by reading those books. And to the better, you know, it, it was a great influence on my dream life. It's amazing. What was the name of the Murakami book? The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, which is also a book I've recommended a lot. How can you not? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, now, the other one is George Orwell's um, Homage to Catalonia, which is probably my favorite nonfiction book ever, as far as a history that just plows right through you. Complete, a couple more. Complete the sentence for me. Los Angeles is a wildly diverse and inspirational place filled with the swirl of ideas and experiences. A vortex. Yeah. And finally, if you could construct the perfect meal, what would it be? Well, that's a good question. You know, one of, I guess, you know, I'm so associative and uh, based on whatever's happening right now. So when you said Mendocino, it brought back one of my favorite meals ever. And it's, I'm not really a cook, but as far as if you're saying construct a meal for me to eat, like a you know last meal you're given a last meal it might be abalone fresh from the sea uh, lightly breaded with egg and uh, panko crumbs in a garlic and basil frying pan olive oil little butter maybe john thank you so much thanks i'm vic singh and you've been listening to book stories Book Stories is produced by Alternate Thursdays in Los Angeles. 